Hello. This is the recording of the seventh Twitter Spaces that I did with my friend V. This edition is on hiking, including the sort of places I like to hike, what I take with me on my hikes, problems I've encountered on my hikes, and a brief discussion on how apt my internet brand name is. We also discuss why cows are evil, and on taking toilet breaks across internal national borders. Usual disclaimer, be aware this conversation took place over the phone and is recorded via my computer's internal audio card, so the quality won't be as great as my normal podcast episodes. I'm also aware that every time I typed on my keyboard, you could hear it in the recording. Online real-time research. You gotta love it. Hello. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. This is exciting. Hello. 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 I'm sorry. I think I had some problems with my Twitter app then. I got a million notifications about being a co-host all at once. Sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. You're here. It's fine. It works. And we're on time. Miraculous. Marginally, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're a couple of minutes early. Excellent. Um, so yeah. um, I'll just say that I'm Victoria Pearson but you can call me V and I'm just here so that it doesn't sound like the barefoot backpacker is just talking to themselves. Um, Barefoot is a travel blogger who goes beyond the brochure, usually with little luggage and rarely with any shoes. And when they aren't traveling, they like to run also usually barefoot and hike sometimes also barefoot. And it's the hiking that we're going to be focusing on today. And if you do want to follow barefoot backpackers adventures, you can find their podcast, which is travel tales from beyond the brochure their blog, all their social networks, and their shiny new newsletter on their Linktree site. <laughs> um, on the Linktree site, which is in the bio of their Twitter account, RTW Barefoot. So that's my little admin bit out of the way. So Barefoot, you do a lot of hiking. How do you decide where to hike? Ah, well, generally by looking at a map. Basically, what I do is I, I, I look at maps and go, you know, that looks like it might be a cool place to go hiking. Um, what I will say is that there's a difference between a, I have a few hours to kill, let's go for a walk type of a hike. And then the, this is gonna take a few days, let's do some prep type of a hike. So um, the former of those hikes, the, I have a few hours to kill, let's go for a walk. That's simply a case of finding somewhere interesting. And that might be because, you know, I've seen pictures on Instagram about it, for instance. Now, my Instagram main screen feed, so the people that I follow, is very much made up of, of of hikers, of UK hikers specifically. So, you know, there's, there's, there's places I've heard about and the more I look into them, they seem interesting. And because they're UK hikers in general, they're places I can actually get to. Other things is that I will sometimes go for a hike for its own sake, because I like to revel in the countryside and I enjoy being out in the hills. 
but sometimes the hike itself is part of a wider concept, uh, a wider trip that I've planned and there's other things around that make that trip more interesting. So for instance, uh, I've wandered up a number of hills in the UK. One of them was Pendle. Pendle Hill is notable because of some dubious dark social history, the Pendle Witch Trials, which I did a blog post about. And it turns out that they're a lot less witchy and a lot more pure capitalistic greed than you might well imagine. What a massive shocker. Well, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll do a, a space on dark history at some point that that'll come into. I do um, think we've got one of those scheduled for the future, yeah. Yes. Um, but a couple of the other hills I've climbed in the UK, I've done so because, well, one of them was Winter Hill near Bolton in northwest England. And that's notable from my childhood uh, because it's got a huge television antenna on top. That was where we picked our TV signals up on when I was growing up. So, you know, whenever there was engineering work, there was always just a picture of Winter Hill saying, we're not going to show you any television for the next four hours because we're fixing the antenna. Which is great. Another Today, hill, could just could not relate to that in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> My yes. children wouldn't have a clue what you just said. <laughs> yes and no, because the same principle applies even with digital television. It's just the transmitters in a different place. So it would be a bit like you know the um, cable box at the end of the road failing. It's less interesting and less scenic than the transmitter on the top of Windale, but. Still, anyway, I mean, those transmitters are still used. Um, like they're used for radio and things like that. So, digital radio, even. Sorry, and I took you completely off track with that. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, and, and also things like Freeview still come from the aerial and things like that. So, you still get those, those television antennas are still used. Mm. Anyway, another mountain I climbed in the last couple of years because of things from my childhood was Mulvama in northeast Wales. Uh, because I grew up in Liverpool and we used to go on like we had a, an arrangement with like an out, out, outward bound centre in North Wales. And so uh, most schools in Liverpool did. It was called Colomendi. I can't remember what it's called now. They changed its name. And so it would be a regular occurrence for all of us primary schools to just coach on over there for a bit. And we had a week there in my last year at primary school when I was 10. And one of the things that we were supposed to do was climb Mulvama. And we didn't because it was raining. So we did something else instead. So it took me, you know, 30 odd years, but I finally managed to climb Mulvama. One of the uh, old jokes about it when I was growing up was, you know, um, if you climb it, there's a chip shop at the top. I can tell <laughs> you now, there is not a chip shop at the top of Mulvama. <laughs> there's, there's a couple of other places that I've been to, though, because I kind of felt like I really ought to, like uh, Mamtor in the Peak District, Mother Hill, because apparently to the ancient Britons, it looked like a breast. Um, and but it's near to it's near to Sheffield. So when I lived in Sheffield, it was kind of just over there. So I felt it was, you know, I can't One of those there at some point. Mm. Otherwise, I'm like a traitor to Sheffield life. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, that's day hikes for multi day hikes. That's a different issue. And in those cases, it's largely down to, you know, following a specific named footpath or a trail like the Pennine Way or you know, at least following a trail that other people have done. It's yeah, you've done the Pennine Way, haven't you? I have done the Pennine Way. We'll probably talk about that in a separate pod, it's a mm. pod space. But um, yes, I have done the Pennine Way. It's it's quite fun in Scotland as well because we've got the right to roam law. So that means yeah. you can pretty much hike most places. So even though here, though, there's enough trails and paths that people have already made that, you know, 
we don't have mm. to go completely off off kilter unless you do things like the Cape Wrath Trail. I'm not going to do the Cape Wrath Trail. That's mm -hmm. quite intensive for a British hike. I have limits and I have <laughs> issues. But what I will say is what I like to do is hike. My, my, my primary focus is I like to I like countryside. So I like being in the foothills. I like wandering past the hills and mountains, past, not up them, Pennine Way. Uh, <laughs> the Pennine Way, it's great. It's like, oh, there's a mountain here. Let's go directly up it. <laughs> Every other single footpath goes, there's a mountain there. Let's go past it so you can see it in all its glory. No, the Pennine Way goes up them. But yes. I think uh, it's going your strength, but over a few days, that is going to be quite punishing. Yes, especially with a 20 kilogram backpack. Yeah. Um, I am. I am also quite fond of coastal paths, uh, especially paths along clip top, clip tops, cliff tops. Where yeah, I can, that's not at all worrying for me as your friend when you've got like dyspraxia and yeah, you're wandering around cliff tops. That's great. That's that's fun. The Norfolk coast path was great for that because the well, great is a bad word because the uh, cliff erosion was so great the path kept having to move. Mm -hmm. So. You know, that we went to a cafe there on the Norfolk Coast Path and uh, the cafe no longer exists because it got washed away by the sea. Um, oh, so, yes. so, yes, I've also done hiking abroad, um, which we'll probably talk about again later as well, like many in Vanuatu, of all places, through rainforests and actually almost the exact opposite as well, through a very dry, barren volcanic island because uh, I wanted to see some volcanoes on Ambrim and look into the lava pools from the top. That was cool. Well, Which of those two did you prefer? That's a good question. I don't know. So I, I didn't was... really warn you that I was going to hit you mm. with that question. <laughs> the, the thing with the volcanoes is that obviously we don't get them in the UK, so it's it's mm. it's an exciting and new diff thing to see. It's 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 why I went to Vanuatu. To be fair, I went there specifically so I could hike and look at volcanoes because I never had. Um, but I do find coastal paths really pretty, especially in Scotland, actually where there's usually mm. nobody else around. I have, conversely, hiked through the Fenlands of Eastern England, the flat farming country. Did you enjoy that one? Well, I mean, there, there are worse places to hike, I guess. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was quick. We, we, we hiked rather quickly through that section because it was flat. But... Yeah, flat and easy. But I suppose then a bit featureless and boring, maybe? No offence. I, I, I don't remember a lot about it. Well, we had the most exciting trig point, um, you know, sort of trig points are what the Ordnance Survey set up back in the day so that they could, using trigonometry, maths fans, to work out how far away things were and how high things were. Um, so you sort of stand on one and you could see the other trig point and you knew kind of where it was and yeah. you could calculate distance and things like that. They're usually on the highest points because obviously from the highest points you can see everything around. There's one on the Neen Way that's on the Neen Way. It's on the dike because it runs along the dike. It is the highest spot around. It's about two metres up. Oh, gosh. Mm. <laughs> you are quite tall, but that is pushing it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can see a lot from the trip point because it's the highest point around, but still it's not exactly the most scenic of, of, of Britain parts. Mm. So um, when you do go for a long hike, I suppose it de does depend on your terrain that you're walking and how long you're going for. But in general, what sort of equipment do you take with you? 
Yeah, it definitely does depend on, um, you know, where and how long the hike is. So when I do the day hikes, and this includes things like the Peak District or, you know, the hills just beyond the edges of Glasgow, all I basically need is a camera. I do take a small day pack, but that's more just because I take a day pack everywhere. And that usually mm. contains a bottle of liquid. I would yeah. say water. And it should be water. But other fizzy soft drinks made in Scotland, allegedly from girders, are available. Um, <laughs> I, I also would generally take a notepad and pen um, just because I'll often come back via a pub and like to doodle. Uh, and that's probably it. Oh, and uh, a sweatshirt and a cagoule just in case it rains and gets chilly. For the longer hikes where I'm likely to be camping, even if that's just for one night, then it's a much different story because out comes the big backpack, the tent, sleeping mat, the sleeping bag. The camping stove, the camping gas, the camping cutlery, the small pot I thing I cook things in, the head torch. I've just being able to walk whilst carrying that much stuff. Well, I mean, I, I was around Brighton for the day with a small backpack, and by the end of the day, my back was aching. It, uh, that I mean, may just be because I had a cheap <laughs> backpack, to be honest. <laughs> possibly. I mean, I, I do have a, a decent backpack. But yeah, I mean, when it's full, well, I mean, I've got I've, a lot of the stuff that I pack are quite small, but equally some of it's quite heavy. So but surely like water and things like that must be quite heavy as well. How much food yeah. and water do you take with you when you're going yeah. for a hike? I mean, I'll come on to this in a minute because it is quite an important point. Um, but one of the things I want to say first is, is the amount of clothing that I take is actually less than you'd imagine. Because if I'm hiking in the countryside for a couple of days, all I really matters is that I've got something dry and warm to wear in the evening. Uh, oh, yeah. It doesn't really matter if they're clean. And mm. when you're hiking sort of, you know, 15 miles through the countryside, every single day that you do that, you're going to get a bit sweaty and a bit smelly. So it probably doesn't matter whether your clothes are clean or not because they would be dirty by the end. So if you just wear dirty clothes, it's fine. I suppose, and, especially if you're hiking alone, there's nobody there to be complaining well, that you smell. <laughs> even if you're hiking with someone else, it's like I have this at festivals as well. Um, if you're around the same people and you're all doing the same thing, you don't notice each other. You don't notice mm. what you're going to smell like. You only notice it when you're in a different environment. So when mm. I'm hiking with other people, I don't notice either. And they don't mm. notice. And I suppose thing. you save quite a lot of space by not having to take lots of pairs of dry socks with you. I always take one pair of thick walking socks because um, they're dry and warm. Um, yeah. So usually it's chilly overnight. Yeah. Uh, I also take things like, you know, midge killing stuff because midges mm. but you especially about, in Scotland. yes especially in scotland um yeah uh, i can easily talk about midges um but yeah you talked about water and what you've got to remember is water is heavy mm. um so at standard temperature and pressure one liter of water is one kilogram so if you're already hiking with a pack that weighs 15 adding extra water is going to drag you down quite a lot yeah but, but equally, if you're going to go for a several day hike, you're going to need a lot of water. I don't know what you're supposed to drink every day. It's like two or because obviously also when you're camping, you're going to be cooking stuff and boiling stuff with water. So you're going to need like three or four liters a day. Yeah. Take two bottles into the wilderness. Not me. I just drink and go. Um, but <laughs> I generally take. Yeah, I generally take two bottles. Uh, one's a standard reusable water bottle. And the other one is one of those bottles that has a filtration system in so I can you know, pick up water from streams when I go along. And yeah. remember, take water from fast flowing rivers and upstream of cows and sheep. But having said which, the vast majority of hikes I've done, especially the multi-day ones, 
and also not necessarily in the UK, but also abroad, it's always been easy to refill those water bottles from, you know, toilets, pubs, cafes, etc. Um, yeah. So it's it's not as bad as you'd think. Um, food, yeah, food. Let's let's think about food well, again. Certainly, look with you with you said there that you refilled your water bottle in places like pubs, cafes, things like that. Do you plan your route around places that you can stop for food and water? Not directly. Uh, it's just that obviously a lot of my hikes are in the UK, so they tend to appear. So if you're hiking, say, 15 miles, unless you're hiking in the depths of Scotland, there's a fair chance that in that 15 miles you will come across a village. Yeah. yeah. And there's a fair chance that in that village there will be a shop or a pub or something where you can stop for a while, rest up and uh, refill your water bottles and stuff. So is that something that you're more mindful of if you're hiking when you are abroad then? Like? Do you do you plan a bit more when you're abroad to check that you can get water sources and things like that? Uh, only in the initial stages of, of, of hiking. I don't plan it to that extent um, mm. because in any case, there's only a limit. There's an, basically there's only a limited amount of water I can carry physically. So uh, I will always have that problem. So I will always be on the lookout for streams. I will always be on the lookout for shops. I will always be on the lookout for somewhat toilets. I mean. I'm not saying I fill it up from the toilet, but, you know, toilet yeah. carry And obviously with a, a filter bottle, it doesn't matter necessarily the quality of that water unless you're hiking in somewhere where the water is really, really dodgy, yeah. in which case you've probably got other arrangements anyway. Yeah, you would mm. think you could take sterilising tablets and things like that if you were in a place yeah. where the water was really bad. Yes, yes, yes. Um, right, so food. Um, again, this is mainly a problem for the multi-day hikes. So there's three types of food that I take. First one is snack food. And this is things like, you know, nuts, packets of jerky, wine gums, fruit pastels, cereal bars. Basically, the idea is to have things that pack a lot of energy in a small space because you're going to be eating a lot of them. And they're mainly going to be carried in like small pockets in clothing or in the backpack that are easily accessible. So you can just eat them on the move. The second one is hiking meals. And these are what you generally get in outdoor shops in packets. They claim to be things like, you know, chicken curry or pasta bolognese or in one particular brand, chocolate pudding. They are functional. They're usually dried or otherwise dehydrated. And so you either fill them with boiled water or you boil them in the water to heat them up. Uh, mm. They're useful, especially in the evenings when you need a warm meal. Yeah. The third lot of food I take is the one I eat the most. And that's things like packets of couscous, packets of uh, cup of soup, instant noodles, that sort of thing. Basically, because all they do is they require boiling water. That's it. Couscous especially, because all you literally do is boil some water, pour it over, turn the heat off, wait for about five minutes. I tend to mix them with it's like... It's like a pot noodle, isn't it? <laughs> uh, basically, yes, except that it's smaller. Uh, I, mm. I tend to mix them with like small cans of fish or mackerel because they're cheap and easy to carry. Um, mm. On my biggest hike, I ate a lot of couscous. It is not very interesting, but it is easy, quick, simple, cheap and convenient. And stable at most temperatures as well. Like it's not going to go bad because you can't refrigerate yeah. it or something. Absolutely. I mean, I, I never I never buy things like uh, fresh meat, for instance, when I'm hiking because there's mm. no problem. And I don't generally even buy chocolate because it will tend to melt. Melted chocolate is the best chocolate. <laughs> Melted chocolate is evil and comes from hell. Um, oh, I love yours. 
I put my chocolate in the fridge. I used to, when I was growing up, put my chocolates in the freezer. That's just awful. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm questioning the entire base of our friendship right now. Can I just ask, when you were talking about equipment that you take, I don't yeah. think you mentioned a map. Do you rely on GPS when you're hiking or like your phone or do you use a paper map? Or? I generally use a, the in Britain anyway, I'll generally use the, the Ordnance Survey app, official app. Uh, the reason for this is I love paper maps because the you know you can write on them and they don't they, they don't need a battery and things like that but if you're doing especially a longer hike it becomes quite impractical to carry them because you'll often need two or three and it's just it, I, when you're carrying already a lot of stuff and a lot of equipment that's just extra baggage that you may only need for a day mm. um so i generally use the os maps but what i do is i download the route or at least the relevant parts of the maps screenshot them to my phone before i go so that i don't need to rely on having an internet connection to read them which also saves my battery as well that's quite useful um but what i, I will that you have a portable battery charger that you tend to take with you when you travel i presume you take that with you when you hike as well yes yes absolutely yeah, I mean, what I will do as well is I will plot out the routes beforehand, like mm. at home. So I've already got in my mind, in my head, kind of know what I'm looking for. So when I'm checking the map when I'm on the move, it's I'm not so much plotting the route ahead. I'm I'm just confirming to myself. Yeah. And yeah. um, so, have you ever gotten really lost then? Uh, I mean, yes. <laughs> well, like, what happens if you've planned out your route and then? you find it unexpectedly obstructed by something, you've got to change where you're going. Ah, nightmare. I, I have getting lost anxiety. Yeah, I mean, it happens. Uh, even on named footpaths, it happens, especially in some cases where the named footpath clearly does not exist. And it is his <laughs> imagination, the Neen way again. I will, I will, I will, I will rant about the Neen way until the day I die. Um, I don't know if it's actually true, but I heard that um map makers used to put a fake street in so that they could prove if somebody had just copied their map because they could be like well that street doesn't exist i put it in as a sort of like signature it maybe that happened to you no no it, it is true that they do that with small the occasional small road but the neen way is is i don't know how long the neen way is about 50 odd miles long um <laughs> it's somebody it, would probably it, notice that then <laughs> yeah it's a mythical invention that's about 50 miles long uh i'll check how long it is at some point but yeah um we'll talk about that another in another space right so the thing is so most of the times that i hike most of the hikes that i do the trail is blindingly obvious because either the signposts or because other people have walked it so you know when you're in a, a park or a field and you can see the trampling of the ground left by other people yeah um, usually cutting up a corner yes <laughs> yes there's a word for that i can't think what it is permissive path i think maybe yeah something like that um that's a good sign because it means that i mean i might be the right path but it means that you're on a path and if you follow it you'll get somewhere but yeah. most of the time the trails that i take especially for the hills are they're defined because they're you know often quite stony but they're distinct from the rest of the land that's around them which might be mm. fields or it might be hillsides or it might be sheep or cows, Pun cows, or cows. we'll come on to cows in a minute um <laughs> The trouble that I have sometimes is when the trail, shall we say, mysteriously disappears into the bush. 
Um, I was recently hiking on the Isle of Arran and I had that. I was following a path that went into some gorse bushes and then the trail completely disappeared. Now I checked the GPS and the US maps. It turns out it was about 20 meters too far south and about 30 meters too far up. I had no idea where the path had actually gone, but at some point it had disappeared and moved to the left and moved down. It was an easy task to resolve. I just had to, you know, go down a very steep hill and cross an inconvenient stream at the bottom of the slope until I reached the blindingly obvious path that I don't even know how I missed in the first place. Did that not make you feel quite panicky, though? I think I would feel quite panicky at that point. That particular instance wasn't so bad because there was literally only like one place I could go. So if I'd carried on on the hillside, I would have, you know, got to a point where I could have clambered down anyway. So I knew exactly where I was. I've had a couple of other issues with regards to getting lost and what have you. But, well, like when the path disappears completely and then I have problems with GPS, just not registering at all, that's where I have issues. And it happened on the Pennine Way when I was in the Northumberland. And it sounds like the start of a horror movie. Well, it was quite grey and, and damp. Uh, it wasn't raining, but there was nobody around. And was there the a castle with a light at the top tower? There was a cairn on top of a hill, but no light. <laughs> but um, basically, the field was flooded. I say field; it was a, it was go it was like I don't know, bushy, but it was like that. I don't even know what sort of bush it was, but it was kind of similar to gorse, but not spiky. Mm. Uh, and, but the whole thing was flooded, like mud. And you know, I I take a step and I I just go squash. And mm. the trouble was, I knew I had to get to a hill with a cairn on it, but I couldn't see a hill with a cairn on it and I could see about four hills. But when I was checking the GPS, it wasn't registering. I, I'd look at them, I'd look at my phone and the GPS is supposed to tell me which direction I'm facing uh, on the map. And it was just going haywire. It was just turning mm. in like, all, manner of, all manner of ways at once. And I was going, I don't know which way I'm supposed to be going here. This is not useful. Uh, I did eventually make it to the top of the hill and then the path was quite clear downwards. But that was an interesting experience. Yeah, I can imagine. But with regards to not getting lost, but getting obstructed, there was a point on the hike I did across Great Britain, which we will talk about in great depth at some point. Um, That's going to be our next space, actually. Excellent. So on that on that hike, there was a point in Norfolk where we were walking along country lanes and dead railway lines and we had two instances where this happened the first was on one of the lanes uh by a small bridge that was blocked either side by huge metal i'm gonna say gates but they were kind of like the you know the like wall bars that you'd have in a gym but metal yeah. like huge uh the stream below long way down impassable to get down and impassable to get back up again and to avoid the gates we would have had to have gone a detour for about three miles so there was only one option really uh, mm. I was particularly unimpressed by this. We got around the first one because there was enough of a gap between the gate and the bridge edge for us to do. But the second one, it was just completely blocking the lane. So um, we uh, we had to climb over it, which when you're dyspraxic and scared of heights, not an ideal situation. a big backpack as well. <laughs> I'd taken my backpack off and effectively, <laughs> threw, I didn't throw it over, but Becky climbed first and then took my backpack and then I was able to climb without the backpack. But it was still, you know, I, I ended up with a, a a cut on my hand because I was gripping the metal so tightly. I know. And do you carry a first aid kit with you when you hike? Uh, well, she was carrying one. 
So, I know you're not a role model. <laughs> um, yeah. At least you had somebody with you that was a grown up about mm. it and had yeah. a photo of it. Well, when we talk about your barefooting in a little while, actually. But um, what other sort of challenges are posed for you by terrain? Because, like, a while ago, I tried to do a hike to the next sort of town over from me, next village over from me, and it was only supposed to be two and a half miles away. Um, but we decided to go through the woods. And I had, I had allowed three hours so that we would be able to comfortably stroll this two and a half miles and take in the woods and it would all be lovely. And after four hours, we realized that we were closer to home still than we were to where <laughs> we were going. And so we just went home. <laughs> Why you need a map? <laughs> it was more like, cause I don't know, you expect it to just sort of be flat parts, but it's not. And so there's, there's bumpy terrain, there's fallen trees, there's all that sort of thing. So what other sorts of things have you had like that? when you've been on a big hike have you ever had your timings go way out because the terrain wasn't what you expected it to be i mean we had one instance on the uh again just after that bridge incident actually where we were walking down what was effectively a dead railway line and it was a trail it was a i mean it wasn't a marked trail but people walked down it and then we reached a small river where the bridge had been removed and the water was quite thick with mud. We couldn't tell how deep it was. And it was a, it was just slightly too far to jump. So dangerous, actually. Yes. We pondered for a few minutes, had a wander around just along the bank of the river either side, realised we couldn't get across. So we figured the only thing we could do was go back the way we came and then just take a shortcut down a farm path that was visible on the map. Oh, how um, frustrating for you having to I, 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 I was frustrated. I did swear quite loudly. Um, I don't like backtracking. It just smacks of kind of like a failure and implies that, you know, the last hour has been a complete waste of time. Mm. I don't like wasting time. Uh, but another instance was, again, recently on, on the Isle of Arran. What, there's a footpath that goes, a marked trail that goes around the entire edge of the, the entire coastline of the island. And one part of it goes along a very pebbly beach in sections. And that must have been fun with you doing it barefoot. I was wearing sandals, um, actually, in that particular instance. But I don't blame you. <laughs> um, the sandals were falling apart, but I was wearing sandals. And that was part of the problem because uh, it was fairly damp. So those pebbles, very slippery. Mm. Um, but another part, and the worst bit, is that it went along the foreshore, just below the high water mark, uh, across some huge boulders, which were, again, slippery and uneven and with you know relatively big drops between each one little crevices that it would be easy to get your leg caught in um Are you sure your friend becky isn't trying to kill you were you with me for that I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't with becky this time i was with another one of my twitter hiking friends and that particular part of the trail was maybe four kilometers and mm. because i was being so tentative and because i just I, I just could not work out how to cross some of the boulders because, you know, I'm just wary that I'm going to slip up on every single one of them and I can't judge distances very well um, because my sandals were falling apart and because it was damp. Uh, we actually turned back halfway on that trip because my friend was worried that we'd cut off by the tide. We maybe, you know, I think we were walking at about one kilometres an hour, if that, whereas the next day on some flatter, better ground, we were doing maybe four or five times that yeah um, it wasn't an enjoyable hike 
um, particularly. It was my friend was actually really worried about me for a couple of points as to, you know, how I would whether I'd be able to cope with it mentally and such like that. Uh, what didn't help was the fact that the hillside next to it was full of thorns and I got quite a lot of rips and tears in both my legs and my arms and my backpack. And also somewhere en route, I think I did something to my right hand. I don't know whether it was a, an infection caused by thorn scratch or because I was either holding onto the boulders so tight or pushing them down so hard, but I ended up bruising, possibly breaking a bone or getting an infection in, in the top of my right hand. So I couldn't really move my fingers much for the next few days. Uh, it was mm. not useful. And that that whole scenario did mean that we were a little, quite a few miles um, behind schedule um, on our, well, on their um, planned itinerary around the island. But we, we, we made up for it in the next couple of days, mainly because we hiked in very different parts of the island. So we were both quite happy to go on our own paces comfortably in our own better environments rather than having to be mm. stuck waiting for each other. Because the thing was, I was really slow on that bit, but I was also really quick on the, you know, sort of the going up the hills and things like that. So Yeah. And I well, suppose it's a lot to think about if you're trying to adjust your pace to somebody else as yeah. well and make yes. sure that you've both seen the things that you want to see. We talked about that a lot on your yes. solo travel spaces but, that we did. There's also the issue that in general, I'm quite slow going downhill, especially on scree and small stones. So the more mm. rocky the terrain, even if the terrain is flat, the slower I tend to go. Yeah. Uh, if I'm sort of leaping over cracks and crevices. I'm also, I'm not fond of mud. Um, so really muddy ground, I'm very reluctant to go splodge. Is that because um, you feel like you're going to slip or because you just hate the feeling of walking through mud or both? Uh, both and. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't like the feeling of it. I know I'm going to fall over in it. And also, if I'm certainly if I'm wearing sandals and this happened recently as well, it's like that mud is deeper than I expected it to be. Oh, my God. Shloop. Why is my sandal still in the mud? Mm, nice. Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, the trouble is, though, if you have hiking boots that are properly laced up, that's not going to happen. But you are going to end up getting more and more mud on your boots as you go along as it all clumps together and they get heavier yeah. and heavier and it gets harder and harder to walk, doesn't it? So yeah. and they're also awkward to wash afterwards. Yeah. Um, we'll come on to that when we talk more about your um barefoot hiking specifically but i wanted to ask you um we mentioned that we did a space last time on solo travel was it last time yeah. i think it was last time on solo travel and you talked about why you like to travel alone and um, but in this space you've talked a couple of times about hiking with other people so do you ever hike alone or do you always stick to hiking with other people most of my day hikes i hike alone partly because i often only think of them on the day and i live alone so um it's just easier for me to do that but yeah the majority of my multi-day hikes have been with other people there's not been that often when i've overnighted on my own while hiking uh i mean like in a tent obviously there have been lots of situations where i've you know been on holiday and then gone for day hikes and then gone back to a like a bnb or something yeah. but with regards to an actual tent there's only there's only a couple of times i've done that entirely on my own uh, one of them was the first time i wild camped and that was in the peak district and that was an experience uh, and then i did it in orkney as well and on the outer hebrides so yeah, I, i've done it i just don't do it very often but the thing is when i hike with other people it's often more a case of 
there's a couple of people hiking in the same direction at the same time rather than two people hiking together mm. um because i do like being on my own in the countryside it's, it's really restful and um, means you don't have to worry about what other people are doing you don't have to pace yourself to their speeds and anyway i mean what would you talk about it's hard to have a decent conversation when you're both knackering yourself walking up a hill Mm. And if you do yeah. chat too much, you are going to end up more out of breath and more yes. tired as you walk as yeah. well. Aren't you? I was going to say, it's nice to have someone around to, you know, motivate you and help you up and, and make sure that neither of you get into any bother or trouble and to just provide moral support. But And to have somebody with you if you do get horribly lost. It's a bit less panicky if you're not alone and thinking, I'm going to die of exposure on my own. <laughs> I can read maps. My hiking partners often can't. <laughs> But I mean, one of the one of the hikes I did recently was the Yorkshire Three Peaks in late March. Now, uh, for those that don't know, these are like kind of the three highest peaks in what is now North Yorkshire. They're all around about 700 meters high and they're close enough to each other that it's possible to climb them all in a day. It's a very long day, but it's still a day. Uh, I've always kind of low key wanted to do it, but it was one of those things that I really needed people to make me accountable to do it. Um, but then I found some because the organization that i'm kind of casually involved with the yes tribe uh they said that they were going to have a meetup to do it in late march that was the day before the clocks went forward interestingly mm-hmm. and so we did so we set off at about 20 to 8 so in the morning and we got back just as it got dark enough to need head torches so we just about did it in daylight so it took us about 11 and a half hours to do 24 miles and the thing is, there was, I think it was about 12 or 13 of us. All of us were at different fitness levels. But even though we didn't talk to each other all the time, and even though quite often we were spread out quite a way, we did all get around as a group and we did all kind of almost stick together as a group and we did all help each other on. That's so lovely. it is. It's one of those things that I'm really glad that I did it, but it just felt like a tick box exercise. And I think if I were to mm-hmm. climb those hills again, I wouldn't do it all on the same day. I'd just do them separately and enjoy them for what they are. Um, so when <clears> you <throat> when you do do a big hike like that, yes, um, and you want to spread it out over a few days, yes, how do you decide where to stay? Like, do you camp on a camping site or wild camp, or do you do Airbnb or hostels? What do you do? Uh, it it it. Uh, it very much depends on where I am, how I'm feeling, what the weather conditions are like. I often don't even decide that until the mid-afternoon. Uh, mm. One of the issues, one of the things behind that is because, well, for example, wild camping, you know, we might know where I'm going on a particular hike. I don't necessarily know how far we're going to go on that day, yeah. um, but I know the direction that we're going in and I know where we're headed to in several days' time. But that means that when we start up at the start of the day, I don't know how far I'm going to be walking, which means that I don't know where I'm going to be spending that night generally. I mean, we can look on a map and the map will show you things like, you know, contour lines. So it'll show you how steep it is, it'll show you how hilly it is. It'll tell you things like the high watermark, because I've wild camped on a beach before now, uh, and it'll tell you where the forests are. But it's not until you reach somewhere that you can see things like how exposed it is whether there's good shelter, how flat the ground is in terms of, is it gradually sloping? Are there localized undulations? Are there mole hills? Are there mm. is it damp? How solid rock is it? Is there a lot of heather, bracken, or you know, unhelpful plant growth in the way? Is it a field full of sheep and cows? 
Um, mm -hmm. So sometimes as well, you'll be walking past a spot that thinks this is going to be a really good wild camp spot. Unfortunately, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, so that must make it quite difficult as you get through your day when you're like, oh, it's four o'clock and I've found a good camping spot, but I wasn't planning on stopping until sexy because yeah. it's yeah. summer. Um, yeah, yeah. Campsites are generally okay because they come with facilities, even if those facilities is just a, toilet, a small toilet cubicle and that's about it. You're yeah. not guaranteed a sheltered environment. You're not even guaranteed flat ground, but you do at least get a lot more room and the flexibility about where to actually stick your tent rather than, you know, mm -hmm. if you've got one small flat bit next to a footpath by the side of a cliff, there's only one place you can stick that tent. Obviously, also many campsites have a small kitchen and or a social area that's indoors. So you've got access to hot water and electric points. Very useful for hikers. Some might mm. even have a shower block. But, you know, let's not let's not push the boat out too much, uh, especially <laughs> if the whole bathroom complex resembles a 1960s nuclear bunker uh, <laughs> or, or location for some kind of budget horror movie, complete with long, weird, covered concrete entryway. Alston. It seems like you get into a lot of sort of horror movie trope sort of situations when you're hiking. I think I should be more worried about you when you're hiking than I generally am. There are no vampires in the Pennines. But are there evil cows? There are always evil cows because cows are evil. Cows <laughs> will just stare at you. They will just look at you as you approach them and not move. And just as you walk past them, they'll their, their heads will follow you and... It's like they're plotting to take over the world and you're going to be the first victim. And then when you're in the field and they just trundle on after you, it's like you know, these huge, dirty, great big things. And, you know, what they're not going to you. Well, I mean, even if I don't I, I don't know whether they're doing it for malice. I'm just assuming that they're doing it for malice and they just want to chase me through a field because they think it's fun. To be fair, I have heard that a non-zero amount of people have died from cow attacks or being crushed by cows cows are big and so yeah so it's probably also quite a good idea when you're hiking then to stay out of fields with livestock where you can especially if there's like a bull in there oddly weirdly i've never encountered a bull uh i've encountered a ram but i've never encountered a bull or at least not an aggressive bull it's it's, it's generally always been cows and there's a lot of cows in england they just want to come up and ask you if you've ever heard of vegetarianism. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Anyway, so, yeah, that's another thing to be aware of. And I know Becky has at least one tale of camping in a field that's revealed to have lots of cows in it after she's set up the tent and it's scared <laughs> the life out of her. So, yes. Unexpected I, I, would be scary. Yes. Other than that, um, the trouble with a lot of hikes and, and small villages is that while there might be a and b or a pub that does accommodation they won't necessarily be cheap and sometimes you might sometimes i might need it i mean a lot of my friends are heavy duty wild campers and just they'll just camp in anything but i'm a fair weather hiker let's be honest and you know i have my limits mentally as mm -hmm. well as physically um so sometimes you just need to tap out and go sorry need luxury but and that's how you make the most out of a thing that you're doing though isn't it whether you're hiking or whether you're traveling is knowing when you need to rest because otherwise you're not going to enjoy the next day yes yes that absolutely. That you, if that means that you need to sleep in a bed for one night then yeah. that's what you need to do absolutely and the thing with wild camping is that i like the idea of it more than i like the actual doing of it um mm. i will do it i'm happy to do it and i like doing it but 
Uh, I don't necessarily like doing it constantly all the time. I have, interestingly, I have wild camped on a beach. I've wild camped in forests. I've wild camped by the side of locks, and that's a beautiful experience. I've mm. I've I've camped on the side of a hill that had no flat bits, so I just couldn't even put the tent up. I just had to get my sleeping bag out and sleep on the ground. I've slumped, slumped. I've camped in the grounds of a care home, and I've camped in the graveyard of a ruined church. Oh, that one sounds spooky. I've also camped outside a lighthouse. Hmm. It, was that not quite damp? No, it was a dry day. It was it was it was inland of the lighthouse. Oh, um, I see. It was still close to the close to the um, sea edge, but it was up a bit of a hill from it. The upside of waking up in the morning, like in a wild camping spot like that, is a glorious view. Mm. There are two downsides. Uh, one is that the daylight hits you long before it's time to get up, especially at this time of year up here. Yeah. Um, and the other one is that if you stay in the tent any length of time after the sun comes up. It's really warm inside there. Um, mm. and it does get, you know, very uncomfortably hot inside a tent when the sun And then you're going to get sweaty and that's going to make you chilly when you get up as well. And you... Yes. Now, um, we will go a bit deeper into this in its own dedicated space that we're going to do. I know we've said that about a lot of things, but we've got a lot of spaces planned. But talk to me a bit about how you look after your bare feet when you're hiking like why do you hike barefoot uh why not <laughs> well i get why not but you know sell it to me <laughs> i'm not going to sell it to you i i i because i like being barefoot anyway it's mm -hmm. the next logical step and a lot of the trails that i go on tend to be either grassy based or they're i don't even know how you describe it like compacted soil compacted mud so it's yeah. it's it's soft to walk on but it's still firm mm. um so it, it's it's perfectly it a nightmare on gravel though yes this is why i carry sandals or walking boots with me <laughs> i really do not do like you use walking boots sometimes i i do have walk i've worn them for years but i do have a pair of walking boots I prefer the sandals. I prefer walking sandals to walking boots because one of the reasons why I like being barefoot is because shoes, closed shoes, warm my feet up too much and I feel uncomfortable. So with mm. sandals, I kind of get that protection from gravel, but equally, it's still exposed enough to the air for me to have cool feet, basically. Well, I suppose if you've got very muddy on your sandals, they dry out quicker than hiking boots would. Yes, and being barefoot is even better than, than sandals yeah. for that point, um, because obviously in damp conditions, you, all you have to do is just literally just wash your feet and that's it. Uh, with boots, especially with boots, obviously if the inner lining gets a bit damp, it takes a lot of drying out. And of mm. course, you've got the issue of wet socks. Wet socks are the devil. Yeah, um, that is a miserable experience being stuck in wet socks, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you don't want to go hiking for 10 miles in a pair of wet socks. Yeah, especially um, with boots as well, because you're going to get blisters then, aren't you? Like much yes. more likely if you've got damp socks that are sliding about on your skin. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I suppose you never really get blisters if you don't wear. Anything. No, I don't. I, I, I occasionally do get blisters on the underside of the balls of my feet, and occasionally on my the ends of my tiptoes because of the way that the skin cost constantly rubs against the the ground 
but in general no i don't get blisters particularly much at all so yeah it's 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 great for that respect it means that they don't hurt very often yeah yeah because um, that must be something that people who do wear shoes to hike struggle with especially if they've bought brand spanking new hiking boots to go on their hike with and yeah. um, open them in first <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely the one problem i have with hiking barefoot though is i can't guarantee what the trails are going to be like until i'm actually doing them because i mean the thing is when i'm when i'm sort of like running barefoot around the city streets and things like that it's it's quite easy to just do, go on google street view and just literally see what the roads are like you can't do that with a lot of the hiking trails because you know they just yeah. they're not uh people haven't done that so i'm yeah. um, like the Pennine Way through the Peak District. I've hiked a lot of that barefoot because it's been just about comfortably not quite stony enough for me to get pain from it. And also parts of it have a newly laid boardwalk. So yeah. they're either, you know, um, wooden slats or they're big concrete paving slabs. So mm -hmm. that's pretty easy. But then, of course, then I hit, you know, a load of gravel and I go, I don't really want to do that. Especially going yeah. downhill. So then the sandals come Lego out. mile. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and, and the other problem I have with hiking barefoot is blindingly obvious because I'm dyspraxic. It's like, oh, there's a stone over there. Ouch. <laughs> because I see it, but I can't judge how far away it is. And then my little toe comes off. You know, it's, 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 it happens more often than that. It happens more than zero times. Might be an indication that it's a really silly thing for me to do. <laughs> that it's happened more than once really drums the point home <laughs> and you have had some quite bad toe injuries when you've been hiking before haven't you i think we'll again yes. on our next space we're going to talk in depth about your longest hike but yes. that was on may wasn't it so we'll come back to that incident then but yes that, that particular yes yeah now i'm i'm always hearing from hiking and traveling type people especially those that like winter sports right there's no such thing as bad weather. There's only bad clothes. I don't believe that. That's got to be rubbish, right? How do you deal with like atrocious weather, especially when you're hiking in the UK? Uh, I deal with it by shouting at it, by cursing the weather gods and by whinging a lot. Because especially in Scotland, if you're like in the hills, then the weather can turn really quickly, can't it? Yes, absolutely it can. And that's why you should always, you know, bad weather. It depends on what you are and what you're doing. But yeah, it can turn, especially because oh, obviously it gets colder and windier the higher up you go. Mm. So if you're hiking, you know, in the mountains, it's a lot colder than it is ground level. And I had this on even in little day hikes, like on Winter Hill, at uh, the bottom of Winter Hill, because Winter Hill's not very big. It's only like a couple of hundred meters up. But at the bottom of the hill, it was perfectly sunny, clear, dry day. When I got to the top of the hill, I had rain, a little sleet and visibility. Like that TV tower on the top of Winter Hill is about 300 metres high and I could see about three metres of it because mm. it was just so absolutely foggy at the top there. And there was mm. no indication it was going to be like that when I was at the bottom. So, yes. But yeah, um, bad weather. It depends on where you are, what you're doing. So the worst weather I ever had, I've mentioned this before in a space. It was before we did the hike across Great Britain. It was a training hike in the Peak District. Uh, we, me, my Becky and our videographer, Joe, uh, uh, took a weekend in Edale. We wandered up Kinder Scout and it was in March. And during a storm that was so vibrant, it had a name. There was snow on the ground. The winds were about 50 mile an hour, 45, 50 mile an hour gusts, and it was raining. So me and Joe are just going there going, what the fuck is this? 
And then <laughs> Becky was just skipping over the trail as if it were like a summer's day. Um, <laughs> and then part of that trip, we went down a route called Grindsbrook Clough. Yeah, the Pennine Way used to go up it, but then they rerouted it to a fantastic name. I know. They're all fantastic names in the Peak District. Uh, <laughs> it is basically a waterfall. It's a brook comes off Kinder Scout there, although usually it's just a dry but steep rocky trail. And a couple of summers ago, I actually climbed it barefoot and fancy free. And it was absolutely glorious and enjoyable and great fun. But on that day in the Peak District with Becky and Joe, when it was raining, 50 mile an hour wind, it was basically literally a waterfall. Um, so we were going down it, just trying to avoid being swept down. And um, it was not a pleasant experience. That must have been particularly scary for you since you're quite scared yeah. of water in general. <laughs> Water, heights, slipping, going down. It was not a good not a good thing mentally for me. I was whinging a lot. Sounds like an anxiety but, dream for you, that does. <laughs> but we were we were staying at the nearby youth hostel, so it was um it was that it was fine. We weren't carrying a lot of equipment with us, so it was yeah. it was okay in that respect. And we had somewhere to drive to go back to. Uh, mm. when we did the hike for real, the worst part of that hike in terms of weather was a couple of days north of that point. We had basically four days of constant heavy relentless rain and the scenery up that part of the peak district is bleak it is very very dour moorland there's nothing there and that was that was challenging certainly for my mental health because I, I mean i was wearing the waterproof cagoule but it was like it was a cheap one from a small chain of stores called boys uh for british listeners boys is basically a regional knockoff of b&m and there's only so much rain a waterproof can take and uh, I was, you know, I was wearing dodgy and leaky walking boots because of that toenail incident. So I was trying to keep that dry and underexposed. And that was a failure. So we had like four nights of this, four days of this. And we didn't camp those nights. I was going to say that sounds so miserable, but I was imagining that you were trying to camp in that as well. I don't blame you taking a bed. Yeah, we, we had a night in a pod in a campsite. Then we had a night in a B&B. Then we had a night in somebody's house, and then we had a night in a campsite dorm. And then was that just somebody that you randomly met, or somebody that one of you knew. In principle, it was someone that Becky knew. In practice, it was someone that Becky had vaguely come across online, mm -hmm. uh, who, was, who was tracking our progress, and then met us at a layby in the middle of the Peak District. Going, this possibly could have come up on our travel and personal safety space. Like I, I, I was with Becky. It was fine. There were two of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, the worst it's weather. This entire space has just been ways that you could have been murdered. <laughs> most of my entire travel experience is ways in which I could have been murdered or could die. <laughs> um, when I was on Aaron quite recently, we had the res the residue of a name storm. We had winds allegedly gusting at sixty to seventy miles an hour. Uh, although we were in campsites sheltered by the trees, we could definitely feel and hear the wind uh, coming mm -hmm. through the tent. The thing is, it's not always the wet and windy weather that's the problem. This doesn't happen a lot in the UK, but it certainly happened a couple of times, and it's happened in Vanuatu as well. Uh, it's actually been too hot to hike. Mm. You've got the issue where you're really grateful for the water and the hat. The thing with cold weather is you can just, you know, you can stay somewhere that's dry and warm. You've got, you know, dry, warm, thick clothing you can change into. Uh, whereas when it's hot, you can't kind of take all your clothes off because that would be weird. Um, yeah. 
makes it really uncomfortable to sleep. I am aware the naked hiker exists. I am not the naked hiker. Plus, he wears boots. Even, even the naked hiker must get too hot sometimes and think, oh, I wish I could just take off my skin. Well, exactly. I mean, that would be really great if you could take your skin off, but you can't. Um, it happened on the Norfolk Coast Path in all place, of all places because it, it just we were there and it was it was a heat wave in late. It was about this time of year, actually. It was a heat wave in late May and um, mm. it was just immensely hot. And there's no shade sometimes on some of those paths. Yeah. Um, especially when you're walking five miles down a, um, a pebbly. Yeah. It's got pebbles on it. So five miles down a beach, a longer beach mm. uh, in the hot sunshine is not a good way to not a good way to hike. And you can end up getting badly burnt when you're walking along the coasts as well, because the sea breeze makes you feel slightly cooler than you actually are. Yeah. And the um, salt, salt will dry your skin as well. Mm, all of my worst sunburns have been in Norfolk, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so apart from the multiple ways that you can die and yeah. <laughs> the having to carry lots of water and stuff like that, how does hiking feel different to just like moseying around town for the day? Um, I mean, multi-day hikes are going to by definition because mm. when you're moseying around town for a day, you're not going to be, you know, packing your tent, your camping stove, and changes of clothing just to, you know, wander around suburbia for about ten miles. I do take my hiking backpack to go to the supermarket with, though, so sometimes it feels like it because mm -hmm. uh, it's much easier to carry a week's worth of shopping in a backpack than it is in several handheld bags, especially yeah. if you're a mile from it. But you know, I said earlier that you know, on a day hike, I'll take a small day pack. But I do, yeah. I do that, I do that in towns as well. So that's what I will wear walking through the streets of a city or a multi-small town adventure. And mm. there's an overlap here because I spent a large amount of this millennium in Nottinghamshire in a small town. So my surrounds have been villages and other small towns with country lanes and footpaths connecting them. So in a way. When I'd be hiking on day hikes around that part of uh, the country, it's kind of very similar going through places like Selston, Jacksdale and Pledsley, uh, very similar to the sort of thing that I would be doing on a much longer hike. Yeah. Um, so I'd probably end up going to the same shops and the same pubs, regardless of, you know, whether I'd be going to a campsite, or whether I'd be waiting for a bus home. Um, so in that respect, there isn't a lot of difference. It mm -hmm. is slightly different when you live in a city because, you know, even in the suburbs, when you're the only person walking, because why would anybody be walking through the suburbs? There's nothing to do in most of those suburbs. Uh, <laughs> and not very interesting. Um, but certainly going around a city centre has a different vibe to it than, you know, walking alongside a farmer field in the foothills. What I will say, though, is that it doesn't make it any less of an adventure because yeah. there's always something interesting to see around the next corner, possibly more so, uh, certainly if you open your eyes to it. So in the country, you might be walking past similar vibing fields for several miles. The view won't change that much because physics. But in a city, everything is constantly changing. Uh, mm. you know, you've got architecture, murals, street art, the shop frontages. So always look up, always look down. There's, there's something to see on every step. It's a very different environment, but it's not necessarily any less interesting because it depends on what you're looking for and what excites you. you um, the only difference is you're not going to be carrying a big bag to do it. Mm. You might and have to me there why I find going through town much more tiring than I find walking through the woods or the countryside is because of that sensory input and all those different things going on, I think. Yes. However, conversely, it's a lot easier to, you know, yeah. I need water. Where can <laughs> I buy some water from? Oh, there's, a, there's, there's a Tesco Express just there. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, or a toilet, in fact. Um, yes. 
And so, yeah, we obviously, we can't talk about wild hiking and wild camping and things like that without talking about the obvious wild shitting. Talk to me about wild shitting. I would, but I've never actually done one. Um, my, you my di- all the way across Great Britain and you didn't need to do a shit in the world ever. My digestive system's an interesting beast, yes. I've never needed to go while I've been hiking in the countryside because I've always made use of toilets in pubs, cafes and campsites. Mm. Uh, one of the tactical tenets of hiking is always use a toilet if you find one. So, yeah, no, I, I, for the way my digestive system works is that I don't necessarily need to go that often. So mm-hmm. I've always just managed to go where I you know, go, where there's a toilet, basically. I will say that my hiking partner, Becky, for the hike across Great Britain, has done an entire blog post on the techniques and ethical considerations of wild toileting. So if you want to know more, check that out. Uh, she blogs at beckythetraveller.com. Uh, and she knows what she's talking about because she's got massive amount of experience at this. Well, uh, in public. <laughs> I'm sure she'll love that as a as a recommendation. <laughs> she's quite proud of that blog post, I tell you. Um, <laughs> I will say I've taken wild wheeze on a semi-regular basis. I was um, going to say, you must have. Yes, quite often. Uh, obviously, as a male-bodied individual, it's relatively easier for me to do it because all I need to do is just find somewhere secluded, part hidden, unzip, do the business, zip up, back. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you've got to be very aware of, you know, local environmental conditions, like, you know, don't do it where there's a danger of off running into a stream. Uh, mm-hmm. I find behind a stream to be the best place. Uh, I did once swing from England through the fence into Scotland. It was... <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that more when we do uh, specific spaces on border crossings, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was behind the mountain hearing hut on the Pennine Way that we were staying in overnight, seven miles from the northern end. And the fog was mm-hmm. so thick, you could barely see the fence in the first place. So I reckon I was probably being quite discreet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say I would say one, one, one tip is that regardless of your toilet routine, regardless of your expectations, always carry toilet paper with you when you multi-day mm-hmm. hike, because you never know what you're going to be faced with. And you really don't want to be stuck with only a nettle leaf to clean up with. Ouch. <laughs> so um, I did actually just m- mention it there, but I wasn't supposed to yet, because I was going to ask you, what is your longest hike that you have done? I mean, it depends on your definition of hike. So the longest continual period in which I was hiking was my hike across Great Britain. Uh, mm. It was 57 days and uh, nothing else comes close to that. But. I kind of see it more as a series of consecutive hikes rather than one long hike, because I, especially as at the end of it, I then continued further by going up the Outer Hebrides for about a week, mostly on foot. So I don't really. I don't know where you found the energy to do that after just hiking for fifty-seven days. You were like, "Oh, just do a bit more." It's amazing how much energy there is in a cereal bar and couscous. Uh, What I will say though is that most of my other standalone hikes, they're kind of measured in hours rather than weeks. So I was hiking around the Isle of Arran for about six days, kind of, in the sense that I had a couple of small bases halfway through. So it wasn't exactly a point to pointer, but it was still I was hiking. I did. I was hiking for basically six consecutive days. Yeah. Uh, I, I also did a couple of three day point to point hikes in uh, Vanuatu, uh, one mm. across the island of Ambrim over the volcanoes. But that itself included one full day with a base in the middle of the island to explore the volcanoes. 
So although I was walking a lot, I wasn't carrying my big backpack with me when I did those trips, only at the start and the end. And then I had another three-day hike across the Vanuatan island of Malakula, and that was two nights in different places. Um, so that kind of counts. But apart from that, it's mostly sort of a night here, a night here, and a lot of day hikes, really. Um, Do you see um, taking equipment with you, taking a backpack with you, as being the difference between a hike and a walk? No. What is, the, is there a difference between a hike and a walk? Um, I would say yes, but I'm not sure I could actually define it. Mm. Um, so uh, there's so many different ways of... Um, hang on. Cheating. <laughs> so many different, there's so many different ways of, of defining the difference. I mean, I would say that I guess all hiking is walking, but not all walking is hiking, if that makes yeah. sense. So yeah. you, don't, you, don't, you wouldn't hike through the suburbs, but mm. equally, you know, if you do a day hike across, you know, down a footpath that's near your house, is that the same as a day walk? Does it make a difference if you go over a hill? Does it make a difference if you're just sticking entirely into uh, semi-rural and semi-urban areas? I, I don't know. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind is obviously if you kind of live on a small Scottish island in a house that's four miles from the nearest shop. Yeah, going to get milk could be hiking. Exactly, exactly. So I, I don't know if, I don't know what the difference is, but I would say that, it's all walking and a hike just kind of implies that you're doing something that's a little more strenuous or a little more difficult or possibly longer. Mm. Um, but so for instance, I've a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a 10, 11 mile walk through the Southwestern suburbs of Glasgow. I don't know if that was a hike or not, yeah. but it was a long walk. Mm. A week or two earlier, I did the same thing through the Southeast and went through a country park with a big hill in it. Yeah, I, I don't think that's different from walking 10 miles through flat suburbs. No. But it might be. I don't I, I don't define it. So I, I would say I would say that all as I say, all hiking is walking, but not all walking is hiking, but I don't quite know where the boundary is. Yeah. So if I was thinking of starting hiking now. Like, where would you tell me that I should start with it if I haven't done any before? Find a footpath that's near to where you live and walk it. Uh, where where would you find stuff like that? Uh, most maps will have footpaths uh, listed on them. Certainly the all the Ordnance Survey maps do. And most of the maps, like even Google Maps has a lot of them on. So you'll just sort of see, they're usually a dotted line. Yeah. Um, so you just find a dotted line. Might be a signpost at the start of it. Look on a map, see where the dotted line goes, try and get a loop of a couple of miles or so to begin with and just go, I will walk that. Yeah. And I suppose and in Scotland, it's a little bit easier because, like you said, you've got the right to roam there. And yes. so there's less but, sort of enclosed land, but, maybe more public rights of way. Yes. But I mean, even in, in most countries will have, I mean, certainly England has a lot of footpaths, mm. like absolutely shed load of footpaths. So, it shouldn't be too difficult to find one, yeah. uh, basically. And because there are so many of them, some of them are named, some of them are long distance, and some of them are just, you know, casual cutting off a field between two streets. So you have to walk around. 
And if so, they are sort of the big trails that people sort of know about, then quite often you can find sort of guidebooks and blogs and things about yeah. them if you need to find out about things like accessibility, whether you can, you yes. know, pass wheelchairs and things like that. A lot, I mean, a lot of the, certainly in England, a lot of the named footpaths will have websites as well, where mm -hmm. either official websites or there'll be people like me that have done very detailed information about them. Yeah. So, for instance, if, I, if I'm looking at an OS map for where the area that you live in, I can see that there is a named footpath that runs very close to your village. Yes, I've walked part of it before. Yes. Have I don't I know. It or have I hiked it? I don't know. Well, yes. Um, I mean, you maybe it's it, the intent that matters. If I walk it purposefully, am I then hiking? I don't know. It looks like there's a couple of them actually. One of them is a circular path that goes, you know, a right right the way around your nearest town, mm. um, which is going to be huge. But you you can just do like little bits. You could start in one place, do like five or so miles, go back home, and then another day drive out to another part of the path, and you know, park yeah. up to another five miles. And it's a big um, part of your ethos, isn't it, to say that everywhere, wherever you are, even if you're not close to one of those trails, everywhere has something that's interesting about it. Yes. And, and I'm, so I'm also, there's always I'm also, something to discover. I'm also very big on hometown travel, making mm -hmm. sort of, it's not just the case that everywhere is interesting. It's also a case of where you live have things that you may not know about. And it, it's yeah. quite easy. It's, it's very easy to explore the area that you live in. And it's one thing to go, you know, sort of, I mean, I've mentioned Vanuatu. Vanuatu is like sort of 12,000 miles away from me. But, mm -hmm. you know, Greenock is 12 miles from me. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier for me to go walking in Inverclyde than it is in Vanuatu. So why wouldn't I? Because mm -hmm. it's just there. And it's, yeah. it's, it's, I'm not saying it's any less pretty or anything like that, but it's certainly accessible and scenic enough and convenient and easy. And as you've said before, for somebody else that lives from somewhere else, that is an exotic sort of location. That's an adventuresome sort of location. And just because it's close to you doesn't make it any smaller of an adventure, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm keenly aware that we've overrun quite a lot now, but I think we've covered most of the things that we were going to talk about, about hiking. Awesome. If you want to follow the Barefoot Backpackers Adventures, you can listen to their podcast, which is Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. Um, you can visit their website, which is barefoot-backpacker.com, or you can follow them on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and everywhere else that there is anywhere else. Um, and the links to all of those things are on their link tree, which is in the RTW Barefoot Twitter account bio. Yes. That is all the ad. Oh, and I must mention before we end as well, that you have just launched your new newsletter, haven't you? Uh, apparently, allegedly, I have just launched my new, my new newsletter. Very good. It must have taken you ages. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the sign-up link to that is also on your link tree um, in your Twitter bio. So if people want to sign up for that, they will get a newsletter from you on, on or about the first of the month where it will have the latest spaces, your latest blog post and your latest podcast on there so that they can follow your adventures right from the comfort of your inbox there. As well as information around what I've been doing and other things that might come in interesting. Like, for example, I will request contributions for future podcasts. Mm. 
Oh, and talking about future contributions, if anybody listening to the space has a question that we didn't cover or has an idea for a topic for a future space, then you can let Barefoot Backpacker or myself know and we will try and work it into a future space as well. Yes. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you, everybody who joined and listened to us having a little natter today. I've really enjoyed talking to you again. And um, we will speak again on our next space all about your east to west coast hike. Yes, it'll be grand. Looking forward to it. See you then. See ya. Thank you for listening. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass Bonus by Kai Angel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.